0: Tonight's conversation is on Buddhism. The one thing I want to mention about Buddhism is that of all the religions that have been covered so far, this is the one that has the least amount of God. It has the least amount of gods or goddesses. In fact, you'll find that as we kind of work through Buddhism and talk about it a little bit, really gods and goddesses don't play a very significant role at least in how you're supposed to develop your relationship and what you're supposed to do um, leading the the Buddhist life so with that said um, tonight's conversation could be a little bit more uh, at least philosophical uh... because when, you, when you're talking about reaching enlightenment i think for christians you know, we think about the end of our lives and the next part of that life being heaven and that you know we think of that as an actual place whereas in buddhism I'm not quite sure what that looks like so hopefully we can have a discussion about some of those things afterwards. Um, Buddhism. I tried to find a number of the the number of Buddhists. I came up with about 376 million Buddhists in the world today. This is not exact. I've seen numbers anywhere from 200 million to 500 million. Very prominent in Southeast Asia and East Asia, although um, Buddhism you can find all over the world. Um, Richard Gere is a Buddhist i trying to think. There's, there's a couple of famous... <laughs> Lisa Simpson's a Buddhist. That's right. If you travel all of 15 minutes um, to West Covina, you can find a rather large Buddhist temple there. I actually encourage you to go visit it. It's free. And it's, it's really quite beautiful. Um, but it actually begins, by the way, in India. Uh, and we'll, we'll get to that in a second. It's roughly 6% of the world's population, and it includes countries like Sri Lanka, Thailand, Cambodia, uh, China, North and South Korea, Japan, etc. There are three main traditions, and really the first the first two are the main traditions. The last one is actually Tibetan Buddhism. And we're not going to talk about all three tonight. We're just going to talk about the main themes that they all share. Um, because some of the differences between them have more to do with political and economic and the actual location, not, not theological. I do want to point out, though, here we are, the three jewels. This is common to all three traditions, and this is what you're supposed to do. You pay respect to the Buddha, the Dharma, which is teaching, and it's, sometimes it means more than just teaching. It can actually mean the eternal truths. And the Sangha, which is the order of disciples, which is basically the ordained. Although in Buddhism, you don't have to be ordained to reach enlightenment. In fact, if you're part of the Mahayana branch, you don't have to be ordained. You can reach enlightenment just being a, you know, a lay person. Whereas the first branch, Theravada, you actually have to be ordained. So they restrict that to you've actually committed yourself to the monastic life. Uh, the other interesting thing, by the way, about uh, Buddhism is that it un- uh, started in India, but essentially has been pushed out of India, kind of like Christianity. started in Jerusalem, and it's not a place where you really go to be a Christian anymore. So Buddhism and Christianity have that at least in common. They're not native to the places where they actually started. If you do these, if you follow these three things, you'll reach enlightenment. Although it gets a little bit more complicated, because there's more you have to do. This is kind of the basic, yeah, they have, we've got all these principles and this, all these different rules, but if you do these things, this is how you're going to reach enlightenment, but it's not going to be enlightenment in the same way that Hinduism was. We're going to see some parallels, but we're going to see some major differences. Buddhism is largely a monastic faith. There are people who are ordained in the sense, but they're really just monks. So it's not like uh, in Christianity where you have the Pope and archbishops and you have you know lots of buildings and a structured clergy and the whole thing. It's very different. As a part of its monastic element, though, they do at least have some temples where you can go and you basically learn the theological preferences of whatever teacher you've chosen to work with. And they do study various sacred texts. But again, we're not going to get into the specifics of that because there's lots of them. Buddhism comes out of... Ancient India, and really it starts around the 7th and 6th centuries B.C.E. At this time in India, a lot of the smaller kingdoms were basically consolidating, and so there was a lot of money going around, and people were getting wealthy, and when people get wealthy they have time, you know, for fun stuff, like going to Dodger games, they won today, Uh, and, you know, thinking about religious things. So in India at this time, you had the development of a structured, you know, wealthy society that's beginning to ask questions about what is the nature of reality. And at this point in India, Hinduism had not solidified yet. So you had the influence of the Aryans, remember from last week, but Hinduism was not the only religion yet. So the elements of Buddhism were there. Uh, because there was lots of new wealth, there was actually a competition between classes. So the merchant class was getting wealthier and wealthier. You remember our forecast from last week? Uh, the merchant class had become so wealthy that they actually exerted more economic control and power than the Brahmin class. So it was a big change. Um, because if you were part of the merchants, you didn't actually own land, but they actually just had more money. And um, so, yeah, this economic prosperity led to the question of religious devotion because Hinduism hadn't didn't have a firm hold yet you had basically along the Ganges river you had just various teachers and you could go and study with them and you got to pick kind of like going to you know college you know, there's your list of professors for whatever field you want to study just say you know it's all in religion and you pick the one that you either like the most maybe the one that assigns the least amount of homework Whatever you need to do, and this is kind of the way it was done then. They would actually look for people. Hey, this guy doesn't have as many requirements, um, so maybe I'll study with him. But along the Ganges rivers, where you had all of these basically monastic camps, and people would just show up and say, "I want to devote, I want to devote my life to studying what you're teaching." Uh, the unique thing about them is they admitted people who were non-Brahmins. And last week, again in Hinduism, if you were part of the Brahmin class you were the only ones who could teach. But in the, this early Buddhism, you didn't have to be part of the, the upper caste. You could actually be in a lower class and, and learn um, enlightenment. And these were just some of the disciplines that were included. So if you wanted to become one of them, you had to have a vow of celibacy. There were dietary restrictions. You actually had to do quite a bit of manual labor <laughs> Uh, you were basically expected to keep the camp running, and qu- uh, quite a bit of meditation and study. So it wasn't wasn't easy. You were kind of giving up all your wealth and everything and committing yourself to this. Yeah. If you were in a lower caste. Would the hope that be you would still practice so that you would reincarnate in the higher class? would that be right? Exactly. But remember, at this time, Hinduism is around. I mean, the ideas, the foundation is there for Hinduism, but it hasn't quite formed in that way. So. Really, the issue here for them at this time was these people, you know, are are getting rich. You know, the Brahmins, the Brahmin class, wasn't as concerned with religiosity at this point as much as they were, kind of the economic situation that was unfolding. The fact that you had people from a lower caste who were actually learning things. But later, yes, if you're in a lower caste and you're there for a spiritual issue, which is not true of Buddhism today either. There's no caste system in Buddhism, so. so yeah, very appealing. I know everybody wants to run off right now so they can take their vow of celibacy and their dietary restrictions and work really hard every day. No one? Oh, yeah.
1: Did you come across anything in your research that suggested why those requirements may have been
0: appealing at that time? Yes. Part of it has to do with how they viewed the, you know, your existence. So the thing they felt, which is keeping you tied to this world of suffering and pain and all of this is because of your desire. So if you eliminate X, Y, and Z, then you won't be struggling from that, you know, that ego, that desire. And that's going to get more developed. Because it's not something that right away seems appealing to most people. Gods and goddesses, they function in real minor capacities as creator gods, as weather gods, but not as actual deities that are worshipped. In fact, they're not even responsible for salvation. You're on your own for that. It's up to you to reach enlightenment. Okay, so there's no um, God that's gonna provide that for you. So what I wanted to show here is just some of the innovations. So they taught, unlike Hinduism, they actually taught of the impermanence of the human soul. Okay, so the, the soul changes. It's not one fixed thing unlike in Hinduism, and also they taught social equality, which would have been very appealing for a large segment of people. Yeah.
1: So were most of the people that signed up for those early kind of teachings like lower caste that felt like they didn't have a chance to learn about their religion in Hinduism?
0: I'm not sure entirely, but what the text and the research I did seems to suggest is, yes, you had lower caste who who were signing up, but you also had people who had become wealthy, and we're simply now asking religious questions, which is going to come back in a second because uh, when the Buddha comes, okay, his father tries to uh, make sure that his life is protected so that he never sees suffering or anything bad so he doesn't pursue the monastic life. So there's this idea already back then in the sixth century that you can't help but see the suffering. And when you see that and when you see the pain in the world, it's going to make you ask these kinds of questions. But certainly, if you were poor and you could be equal, that would be appealing. Uh, They also borrowed ideas from early Hinduism, though. Karma. Karma plays a role, but there's... In this case, good karma is not as bad as it was in Hinduism. Remember we said good karma was still bad. Uh, Rebirth and the ascetic life. So there's still a lot of influences on Buddhism. So these are... uh, You might say the three pillars of Buddhism, the Buddha, the Dharma, again, which is teaching eternal truth, and the Samgha, which is the ordination and the kind of ascetic life. Interesting to note that the Buddha is supposed to come at a time when Dharma has declined. Same thing in Buddhism. Remember that God Vishnu is supposed to come at the end of the epic because righteousness has declined. Okay, so again, another similarity there. The Buddha isn't sent by a God. It's not sent by a goddess. The Buddha comes of its own accord. It actually sees its need and comes. When it comes is at the point at the, you know, the lowest point of righteousness. So it, it intervenes in the world when it's absolutely necessary. There's only one. So you, when you reach enlightenment, by the way, you don't become Buddha. The Buddha has appeared in previous eras. And will appear again in subsequent eras. So for our era, we have one. This is the person who has achieved full enlightenment. So they've been given that status. Yes?
1: How long is an era? Is it like Hinduism or it's like a.
0: No. It's not numbered like in Hinduism where we actually have, you know, how many years or God years. In fact, it seemed to me that there are people who are kind of looking for the next one. So there's an anticipation. Um, he lived to the age of 80, all traditions agree on that. They all agree on it. What they don't agree on is when exactly he lived. So some have it as early as 624 BCE, while others have him dying around 368. And they all use different texts to support their claims and whatever. Um, But somewhere between 624 and 368 BCE is where he lived his 80 years. Again, achieved enlightenment through his own meditative and reflective efforts. And what I want to read is the life of the Buddha. The Buddha didn't just appear one day. Okay? He himself had been reincarnated several hundred times before actually reaching the stage of enlightenment where he could become the Buddha. So, let me start off here. So, before he becomes the incarnate Buddha, um, he's already lived previous lives, and there's a kind of a cool story where the Buddha from a previous era, okay, the one before our current one, was walking along a road coming into a town. And the people in the town knew he was coming, and so they were trying to cover the mud holes. They were just trying to fill the mud holes in the road so that he didn't fall in them. And one guy happened to see that the Buddha was coming, and so he... Uh, and realizing there was still an empty hole here he jumped inside of it so that the Buddha would step on his head you know and not in the mud and as the story goes the Buddha stopped at him and said basically because if you're because you're pious you're going to be the next one at some point in the future you're going to become the next Buddha okay so this becomes a part of his karma complex is what I'm gonna call it because okay? this person dies and comes back reincarnated several more times, okay, before he actually becomes Buddha. And there's one more story before he becomes Buddha, which was also interesting. This is I never get to use this word either. The penultimate rebirth of the Buddha. It's kind of a cool word. Um, he is reborn as a prince. So this is after the first story. He's reborn as a prince named Vesantara, and because he's you know been working on this stage of enlightenment because each time he's reincarnated he's basically just he's getting holier and holier and in this instantiation he wants to give all of his money away and all of his wealth and basically he makes a a deal he says if you ask me anything i'll give it to you so this is easy for him to do with the poor right because they're just asking for food and clothes but as he gets older it gets more complicated especially when one of the foreign kingdom asks for the crown jewels and the sacred elephant, which he gives them, which irritates his people. So they actually send him into exile. And in exile, he gives away his wife and children, because somebody asks for them as well. And at some point at the end of the story, he gets his wife and children back, and he gets everything back, and he ends up being king again. And there's a kind of a little note that's added saying that the gods were simply testing him to make sure that he would stick to his vow of generosity. Again, why the gods have to come in at that point in the story to say they were testing him? I mean, it seems perplexing to me. But nonetheless, he dies, and now we get to the fun part where he's actually coming as the Buddha. Yeah.
1: Is it known who the most recent incarnation of the Buddha what it was?
0: like? Gautama is his name. Yeah, it's this guy. There hasn't been another one since. So, he comes back. Here's how it works. There is a queen, and she is napping one afternoon during a festival when she dreams that the four protectors, the four protectors are kind of these archangel-type figures. They come to her in her dream, and they actually carry her and her bed away, her bed, to a grove of trees. So while she's dreaming, she sees a white elephant, which is sacred and is a sign of good fortune. It descends from heaven and enters into her side, basically implanting the Im- embryo of the Buddha into her. Uh, she had been keep- keeping a strict vow of abstinence. Again, this is very important. So she had she, this isn't some other guy's kid. She had been keeping a strict vow of abstinence because it was during a festival. During her pregnancy, she feels no pain, and she can actually see the child in the womb. And when it comes near to ha- or time to have the baby, she travels to her home, but has the child along the way. So on the way to home, she has the child. And the event is marked by a bright star in the sky. Does it sound familiar? We have an Immaculate Conception, and in Christianity, we also have the same thing. Mother was abstaining from sexual activity. Jesus' mother was a virgin. Buddha was born in the grove, Jesus was born in the stable, so they were both born outside of houses. An angel appears to a meditating sage in uh, in Buddhism, and the angels appear to shepherds. And they're both born under a star. Now, to be fair, in the ancient Near East, being born under a star or a constellation is very common. You find that in a lot of stories like that. But I, I really thought the Immaculate Conception part was extremely interesting. And a lot of times I, th- I think this is part of the reason that Christians have a challenging time talking to Buddhists because we share a lot of interesting traditional points of connection. though well, they don't have a belief in a monotheistic God at all. So, after he's born, he is named Siddhartha. And the king names him this, but nobody actually calls him that name. They refer to him as the Buddha. Uh, His father, however, has many of the Brahmin class come in, and they come in and they basically tell him, uh, your son's going to be the next Buddha. And he he doesn't want his son to do that. He wants his son to be an emperor, a ruler. So he goes about trying to hide all of the evils of life from his son. This doesn't work. One day, as he's out on a chariot, he comes across the four sights. One is a sick man. The second is an old and suffering man. The third is a dead man. And after he has seen these three, he sees a monk. So for his entire life, he had this, he lived this privileged life, this sheltered life. Then all of a sudden, he sees the four sights, and he says, I can't do this anymore. Okay, so he flees the castle that night And once he gets away from the castle, he takes off his robes, he gives them to someone else, uh, puts on poor man's clothes and begins the ascetic life. He becomes a monk. Exactly what his father didn't want. He's not the Buddha yet, though. There's a temptation story. At this point in his life, he was trying to live the ascetic life. He had given up everything. And he had yet to reach full enlightenment. So he's very conflicted so he sits down under a tree to meditate. And as he's meditating, Mara, who is the Lord of Death, who is also someone who thinks he's the ruler of the world, comes to him and tries to tempt him. Again, you see the, you see the overtones here. Um, what the first thing he does is he tries to make him move, tries to make him break his meditative trance. He tries to uh, offer his daughters to him, Hey, give up your mission, you can have my daughters. He, um, he says, okay, that doesn't work. I'll give you one wish, any wish you want, just for you to go home and be king. Don't be a monk. He even sends his sons to attack him. He sends his sons, they attack him. It's more of a kind of a psychological attack, but at this point he's become so spiritually strong that he's able to withstand the attack. And finally he engages him in a debate. In the ancient Near East, the way you wanted to debate was the following way. If the crowd cheered for you, you were winning. Okay? The only crowd there was Mara's sons. <laughs> so he was winning. But just as it seemed that the Buddha was going to lose, he cried out to the earth, and the earth made such a loud noise that he won the debate. Okay? So he resisted the temptation of the Lord of Death. And of course, he had uh, prior to this been been living the ascetic life, so not a lot of food, not a lot of water, right? Fasting, whatever. Interesting temptation story. Okay, and of course, this is prior to at least our account of our temptation story. Yeah.
1: Is it stated in the scriptures or is it just tradition that the Buddha is always male, or can it be a female? Or
0: I don't know if the Buddha is always male, but. Women are not inferior in the Buddhism. Uh, In fact, you can be a woman and be fully ordained and reach enlightenment. It's not a problem. It's interesting. uh, At the end, I have some information on some rituals. And there's one ritual where you can actually have monks come and visit your home, and they'll do a ritual for you, and you, you basically feed them in return. And so if male monks come to you, you have to wash their feet before you let them inside. And only a man can wash a male monk's feet because they're not even supposed to be touched by the opposite sex. So if a, if a female monk comes, you've got to have someone there to wash your feet because you couldn't, I, I couldn't do it or you know, a guy couldn't do it. So. But there's no restriction. Uh, after the temptation and his ascetic living, he becomes more conscious of the suffering of the world. What happens is, this is the last stage before he finally becomes Buddha, he had been taught kind of the practices of yoga. And in yoga, you're supposed to kind of jump into your unconsciousness, and you kind of depart from the world. And what he realized after the temptation, what he realized when he became conscious of the suffering in the world, is that you actually have to come into the world. You have to bring enlightenment to the world. So as opposed to leaving it, you need to come into it and, and essentially fix it. Okay? This, is a, this is a big move for him, because he hadn't learned this when he was studying under his yoga teachers and, and learning these types of meditations. And so he goes through the three watches. First, he remembers his past lives. But you're not supposed to stay there. You're supposed to move beyond your past lives once you realize that. He then understands karma. Okay, he understands that he's been reborn. And he understands the process of continually being reborn. And finally, he understands how to end suffering. And because of this, he enters into a state of complete awareness and total insight, becoming the Buddha. Uh, Now that he has complete understanding, he's now reached full enlightenment as the Buddha, he goes back to people who used to follow him. He's got five students. He basically goes back to them, and he says, let me instruct you on how to reach enlightenment. And the way to reach enlightenment is to choose the middle path. The path of moderation between indulgence and asceticism. So he actually goes back and says, you guys are doing it wrong. You're not supposed to be these crazy ascetics who are you know starving yourselves day after day after day. It's the middle path. Okay, it's a life of moderation. Different than Hinduism. A life of moderation is going to get you a definite rebirth in Hinduism. And He also initiates the wheel of true teaching. He attains nirvana. And there's two ways, at least that I think you can describe it. Uh, The first way is kind of a negative sense. You're basically putting out the fire of greed and hatred and delusion that's inside of you. You've reached nirvana. You're no longer uh, guided by those passions, those desires, those things that are going to take you away. Or another way of saying it is experiencing transcendental happiness. You've transcended above all things. But remember, he's still alive at this point. So his transcendental happiness is still based on this physical world. Okay, he hasn't like left his body or anything. Okay, the Dharma. The Dharma is, again, the teachings that are firm, eternal truths. They include laws of nature, laws of spiritual forces or karma, and rules of moral conduct. Okay, moral conduct's a big deal in Buddhism. It's a big deal. There are four noble truths. The first one I think we all can agree with. Suffering is inevitable for all living things. Doesn't matter who you are, at some point you suffer. The second suffering comes from desire and craving. The third truth of cessation, suffering ends when your desire ceases. When you stop desiring those things, you stop suffering. Okay, what about cancer? They seem real spiritual, right? Like the kind of spiritual sense of desire, but what about something like a disease?
1: Well, that was going to be my point that it's talking about the spiritual, not the physical, which we talk about in Christianity too. People are like, oh, I have cancer, but I still feel good and praise God and whatever his will is, and I know I'm going to heaven either way. I mean, we do it too. Our physical body can suffer and we can still be spiritually happy. So it doesn't seem like a promise of physical
0: you know, happiness or contentment. Now, to be fair, the first one, the first noble truth does refer, though, to very physical things. So when it's talking about suffering, it's not talking about, you know, spiritual or emotional suffering. It's talking about, yeah, I'm hungry. I mean, is it possible for you to not be suffering from cancer, though? In other words, is it possible that you could really be fine with it. You don't desire it. You don't desire to be sick, but you don't even desire a cure either. Maybe you've just accepted it.
1: But that goes against something like, the Buddhist idea is like going against any suffering whatsoever, and like, as far as I understand it, like that you're ascending for lack of a better word, like being enlightened, like past it. And so like, the suffering isn't there, or I don't know if that's the right term, but like, that when you get rid of that desiring, then the suffering will not happen.
0: Maybe the question is, can you break desire up in that way? Can you make it either physical or spiritual? Maybe that's the problem we're struggling with here is because in th- in, in one sense the word, it seems like you should be able to reach enlightenment, right? But your body may still suffer, but you shouldn't be penalized for that. But in the same hand, I, I understand what you're saying. Look, maybe you still have some desire in your life since you're suffering. Uh, the last noble truth is the truth of the Eightfold Path, and this is eight areas of self-improvement okay so if you work on these you're going to be able to get to the point of enlightenment my next slide doesn't actually have eight on there though i made i forgot two. so someone would figure it out eventually the first one is right view which means you have understood the noble truths the previous slide so you've, you have the right perspective right thought again refers to you have you're trying to free your mind from desire Ill will, cruelty, those types of things. And the other ones that follow are just practical ways in which you can live a better life, okay, to reach enlightenment. Right speech, don't say bad things about someone. Right effort, you know, make sure that your priorities are in the right place. Uh, Right meditation, right mindfulness. Other ones here, the two that I forgot, uh, right action. Right, knowledge, or livelihood. And action and livelihood are kind of the same thing. Yeah.
1: How is freeing your mind from desire moderation to the middle path? How do those work? I mean, if the idea is like, you guys that are ascetic, we're going too far, and then we're gonna take the middle path, how is freeing your mind from desire the middle
0: path? Another way I might ask that question is, is it wrong to desire these things? Actually, I thought about that. <laughs> Any thoughts?
1: Well, could the argument be made that you can still indulge in things and not be chained to them? Not desire them? Like maybe you don't have to practice um, an aesthetic life and you can, you can be eating like really nice food and be like, well, I'm not chained to this, I don't desire this.
0: And I guess it would be something only you would know whether or not you actually believe that, you know, believe what you're saying the middle path would be something like occasionally going to Chili's, but maybe not like Lowry's or Morton's. You know? It might rule out the nice steakhouses or something. You know? that, that might be indulgence. But the occasional, uh, you know, don't beat yourself up over going to Mimi's or whatever. I think the point is, with desire, you tend to focus, get trapped in one thing. If you don't desire anything, you keep your mind open, you're open for anything. So that way
1: you're not trapped down one path, but open for all paths.
0: Not getting trapped. That's a great way of putting it. So if you go to Morton's enough, though, you know, then someone could say, yeah, maybe you are trapped, right? So maybe indulgence just has to be the, it's not the place you go, right? Just whether or not you do it occasionally or, or often. So maybe too much chilies is indulgence. In uh, the Dharma or the teachings, again, the Dharma is the second part of the, the Three Gems. The nature of existence is in fact suffering. So it's not just a noble truth. Whether or not you realize it, that's the nature of existence suffering. And some people, I guess theoretically, go through their life never realizing it. But it's the state of, it's the way things are. Um, Nature of existence, it's also about impermanence. Okay? All things pass away. And so we are supposed to strive for what is not arisen. So you're supposed to avoid things that arise, and the thing that arises is something that passes away. So if you're striving after something or if you're yearning after something that passes away, you're working on the wrong thing. I think that the way that we should be thinking of striving in this context is to look at its consequences. And so if you are striving to live a life where you're not harming other people, where you recognize it because other people are suffering, you're, you're going to do things to minimize that, that there's just nothing wrong with that. And I think that's part of why he talks about the middle path as well. It's very practical. You know, You're not getting dinged points for that kind of, st- or striving for that. 99% of all things have to fall into the arisen category. Even the creation. They view creation very similar to Hinduism. It comes... And goes, comes back, and goes again, comes back, etc. Even the, the the creation itself is something that's arisen. I think striving for what has not arisen is striving for enlightenment. That's the only thing I could think of. The thing about Buddhism, it's not as extreme as other things, you know. So there are elements to it where you're like, this is a great idea, you know. You you should be doing these things. You should be living good action. You should be pursuing knowledge. You should be living a life of moderation. There's nothing wrong with that. And uh, the next part, there's no soul. So there is no eternal, unchanging self. Remember, Buddha is still a human. The Buddha is not a god, and the Buddha doesn't see himself as a god. It's what I call the karma complex. But think about it. When he's born, he doesn't know he's the soul of the Buddha. Like in Christianity, right? We think, okay, we're born, we live, we die. That's my one-contained-it. Nothing adds to it from the beginning. Nothing adds to it from the beginning or the end, you know. And I get to somehow, even when I go into heaven, I get to retain that sense of like this was mine, right? And so there's, you know, there's some continuity there. So I think what's difficult for us to, to understand is we're dealing with a system of thinking here that's totally the opposite. It's not dealing with like a permanent, you know, this is the one thing, and once it's gone, it goes away forever.
1: Right, I understand that, but what gets reborn is not a soul. no this, this thing is something has to be reborn to the point where you're recalling past lives. And the whole point of being rebirthed is that you were alive, and then you die, and then you come back, and then you die, and then you cut. So something's coming back.
0: Some type of entity, and I don't. I don't want to say it's a soul, but I don't want to say it's... It could be an essence, or it could be an essence made up of parts even. The point is, if it's an essence made up of parts, it's still not one static, unchanging soul. And part, part of, the, confu- or not part of the, the struggle, I think, for us is we think exactly the opposite about the soul. Because we might call that the soul. We might look at that and say, okay, that's the soul, right? And it's, it's being reborn. But for them, that's not the soul. There is a goal, Okay. The end of the goal is to enter into nothingness. So when you reach enlightenment, you're not reborn. Again, this is why it's not a permanent soul. You don't reach enlightenment and then exist somewhere in enlightenment as a soul. Uh, you uh, You should avoid not the word soul, but you should avoid the very idea of soul because it reinforces the idea of self. Okay, that's part of the problem, too. The more you cling to the idea of one soul, you're just clinging to self. You're clinging to desire. But, I mean, but again, this is, this is where it, I think it's helpful to understand, is at least in the conclusion. right? Uh, there are three instructions. Training, concentration, and causality. So training essentially means you follow the moral and basic precepts for proper training. Concentration is just the development of a focused mental state, you need to be focused. And finally, everything that arises does so because of dependent factors. So understanding causality, understanding cause and effect, and understanding that all things are completely dependent on other things is something that you need to grasp. Once you begin to understand that, you know, the idea of that kind of one unified soul, I think, begins to kind of deteriorate. Because now you're just looking at the fact that there's so much cause and effect. The Samgha is the third part, the third jewel. And uh, this is the officially ordained people. Again, I mentioned earlier, in the first Buddhist tradition, they believe, the Theravada, they believe that really the people who only reach enlightenment are the people who dedicate themselves to the ascetic life, which is this kind of ordination, you know, they're wearing the robes, they live in the monastery, etc. But The other views believe that you can be a lay person and reach enlightenment as well. So the term "ordained" you have to use loosely. It's a western term applying here and it doesn't fit real nice. Ordination, though, if you become an official member of a monastic community, requires chastity, poverty, obedience, and a plethora of other things. And like any monastic community, novices join, and they're basically assigned teachers, and they get all the crummy jobs. Again, in other traditions, the sangha includes the lay people, so they're not separated out from the people who are monks. They do recognize, though, that the path of enlightenment requires greater devotion, and because of that, there are different people who are at different stages. Some are closer to enlightenment, and it's interesting, they talked about, you know, you could go to a monastery and there's one person who they might say, yeah, in the next rebirth, they're done. They'll, they'll have it right in the next one. And they'll point to a different monk and say, yeah, they've got a few more to go. So you have, this, you have different levels even within the communities. Yeah.
1: Like in Hinduism, when you are reborn, you were born higher and higher in your caste. So if you're born into a higher caste, you would assume that you must be getting closer. But in Buddhism, there are no levels. There are no castes, right? So how do you know when you're born that you're closer to enlightenment or not?
0: The way that I understand it practically is this. You know that you're closer to enlightenment when you can follow the steps of the Buddha. I imagine that part of that would be your action. I mean, it would be a reflection on uh, how focused you are, how devoted you are, uh, maybe how even intelligent you are, how, how much you've learned, your kind of piety. But uh, you know, you get the impression that there are people who are definitely, you know, looked at as this person is wise, this person has it, or this person is a wise sage. And if they don't reach it this time, you know, I'm sure that you know they're looked up to in that way. And at that point and your meditation and your concentration, you realize you've lived past lives. There's the idea that you even explore those past lives. So I'm not sure if that entails kind of an awakening, not necessarily of a memory, but of your essence. And maybe it allows you to focus more because you're tapping into the reality of your past, what you were, and now you're bringing that with you, and you're kind of finishing it off. So what's interesting today, we have people who say that they, uh, they can tell you about their past lives. They went to a psychologist, did hypnotherapist, and can tell you about their past lives. I'd, I've never believed that, but it's interesting. I don't know if I want to know what my past life was, in fact. I have a bad idea that it probably wasn't good. <laughs> okay, so moral precepts. Buddhists strive to live moral lives, not as commandments from gods, or not even necessarily from the Buddha. So it's not even like, oh yeah, Buddha told me. Even the lay person will kind of say, yeah, I need to live a moral life. And there's five basic precepts that you can follow. Abstain from destroying the life of living creatures. Many Buddhists are vegetarians. In fact, in way back, back in the 6th, 7th century, many of the you know, real early Buddhists made it illegal to even do animal sacrifice because you were you are harming a living creature. Abstain from taking things out, and not giving. That's always a good idea. Abstain from sexual misconduct, not from sexuality, but just from misconduct. Abstain from false speech, and abstain from liquors that cause heedlessness. So if you can find a liquor that doesn't cause heedlessness, <laughs> let me know. <laughs> Three other precepts may be added during holy days. So if you're celebrating a religious holiday or a, a Buddhist holiday, and if you were ordained, you might also abstain from eating afternoon. You would even abstain from dancing, singing, music, and unseemly shows. And abstain from using high and luxurious seats. Basically, having no fun at all. <laughs> you were having the least amount of fun at the festival. Meditation, uh, again, just I wanted to go over these basic things. Meditation, it, sometimes it's just focusing on your breathing. Sometimes it means being mindful of your body. Other times you can, be, you can be focusing on an idea or a concept and goals can include enhancing the power of your concentration, again, which is part of the, you know, the system of being more focused and developing insight into truth about reality and oneself. Again, that last one is probably what prompted you in the first place to seek it out. Okay, so you're always asking that question, the nature of reality, how, how, how do I work you know, in this world? Yeah.
1: Like what role do the gods play, like in Buddhism? Do the gods have names or there stories of their gods? Is it do you worship? Because like in Hinduism, they
0: still worship certain. Yeah, the gods play a big role in Hinduism, and in Hinduism, you you know depending on your location, you might make one god higher than the other and, and kind of give it all the attributes. It e- it even saves you, right? In Buddhism. If the gods have a story, it's only incidental. Gods don't save you, even Buddha doesn't save you. All the Buddha does is open up the possibility. It's you know, it starts the wheel.
1: Well then why do they have like huge Buddha statues everywhere?
0: Well, I'm not implying that he's not important, but I mean he's the guy who has brought enlightenment to you. He has made it possible for you to understand, so you should not worship but revere. But worshiping the Buddha is not going to get you to enlightenment. Nonviolence. And this is something that we just saw in Myanmar, right? The Buddhist monks who were protesting the government there. Harsh punishments in Buddhism are completely forbidden. So if you were a Buddhist king, harsh punishments, torture, out of the question. Um, Prisoners were often released during Buddhist festivals, if you were a good Buddhist king. The Buddhist king was expected to maintain an army, but only for the self-defense of the people. There is therefore no just war theory of aggression. So you will never see, well, you shouldn't see from a, you know, a truly Buddhist country, we need to get them before they get us. And there are some Buddhists who even deny self-defense as justifiable. You can't even do self-defense. Not the majority, but there are some who think that, yeah.
1: Like, what, um, on a note, if you're saying, like, a good Buddhist king, like, are there any countries that are, like, their primary national or primary religion is Buddhism, like, or which countries?
0: Yeah, Cambodia, Sri Lanka, Laos, but those, many of those countries, of course, are not run by Buddhists. I mean, the majority of the population is Buddhist or c- can be Buddhist, but its governments are not. This is more of a, you know, back in the old days when you would actually have a, a person who was you know, a Buddhist king and again, they didn't all do this, but the idea is very strong that it's, it's really nonviolence. violence it's, it's not going to get you anywhere. Very different from us. I think even some of our theologians have written justifications for, you know, a just war type thing. Rituals. Um, there are merit-making rituals, so things that will get you good karma. That's what they're designed to do. Almsgiving is a major, major ritual. It's not even really about you, you know, say we're all lay people who are Buddhists, it's not really about going to temple every Sunday. In fact, in the mornings, in some traditional Buddhist communities, the, the monks will leave the temple and walk down your street. They'll look at the road. They won't look up at you, nothing. And they just hold out their bowls. And they'll either go to your door and you can give them food. And that's part of your almsgiving. They survive completely. On the generosity of the people. That form of almsgiving is actually declining today as the world becomes more, whatever you, secular or industrialized or whatever, these types of traditions are kind of dying away. But uh, Donna is another one, and this is one I mentioned earlier. This is where if you want to celebrate an anniversary or birthday, or something, you can invite them to come to your house and they'll come, you wash their feet, and then they will lead you through the rituals. They'll lead you through prayers and chants and those types of things. And in return, you might feed them or, you know, give them some things that they need. And this usually occurs in a home. Okay? It can occur at a festival or in a temple, but it often just occurs in a home. And there is a festival called Buddha Day Festival, and that's where they celebrate his birth, his attaining enlightenment, and his passing into it. You might think of it as as death, but it's not really death. He passes into full enlightenment. So that's the festival where they celebrate that. Supposedly, as the tradition says, it occurs, all three things occur on the same day over the course of his life. Yeah?
1: I, I guess the question is like if today's practice, today's Buddhism, like, if you're Richard Geary or anybody else who just says, I'm a Buddhist, like, what does that mean? Like, is he just studying under a teacher and following this way, hoping to learn more about enlightenment? Like, what is, how is that modern practice?
0: Right. Buddhism wasn't really known in the West until after the 19th century. So it's a relatively new phenomena here. And it's very difficult for many Westerners to think about it and, and get it. So for a long time, the people who wrote about it, who tried to understand it conceptually, if I want to be a part of this, what do I have to do? Had a, you know, a difficult time adjusting. With someone like Richard Gere, I mean, I've wondered the same thing. You know, he could be studying with someone. I mean, we have enough of the enough Buddhism here in the in at least in California that you could go to a temple and join and put your life behind and kind of join that you know ascetic ordination if you wanted to. Whether or not Buddhism. Is as much a cultural identity as say Hinduism is. You know the caste system is a it's a cultural identity like Islam. That I'm not so sure about. I get the impression that in Buddhism it's much easier. It's much easier to be a lay person in Buddhism because again it's a, it's the middle road. It's moderation. Yeah. Okay. True
1: Buddhism and then the rest is like oh that's cool include it too. Who cares as long as you're on the way to enlightenment or like are you supposed to believe there's no souls but then you're worshiping spirits and ancestors which.
0: I think it's too hard. I, th- I honestly think it would be too hard to say. I think that there's, an I- there's certainly an ideal form of Christianity. There's certainly an ideal form of Buddhism. But then you have to ask yourself the question, not only when it interacts with local customs and cultures, but then you have people involved. Are they really Buddhist? Are they really Christian? They say they are, right, but they do X, Y, and Z. I think that's something more, more or less we just have to accept and live with as opposed to you know, find the solution for it. Yeah. Is Zen
1: Buddhism different than the three types that you put up there? Is it like a fourth type or is it a subset? Or? It's
0: not a fourth type. Um, some have made the the criticism that's merely a westernized form of of Buddhism. It includes things that we understand maybe a little bit more.
1: So my final question is, did you put any thought into how you might approach somebody who is Buddhist to build like common ground uh, other than comparing temptation stories and birth stories, like, is there anything else that you think is a good way to, like, start a conversation with people kind of share a little bit
0: of a whole Yeah, and that's actually the reason I mentioned at the beginning that this is less of a God faith. It's not God-centered, um, and it's more of a way that you live your life. The short answer would be, I think that the area of conversation you might have with someone is, yeah, I think you should uh, not give false witness. I think that you should live a life of moderation. I, I agree with all those things. The difficulty I fear you might run into is the minute you start talking about like a monotheistic God, you know, that created everything, everything is linear, you know, there's a there's a point in history where there's salvation, and then it ends, and that's it. That's, that, I think, would be the struggle, and I'm not sure that they would feel any, re- any need to disagree with you. They might respond by saying, oh, yeah, John, you live a good life. You live in moderation. You give money away. You do all these things. You're a good Buddhist. <laughs> that's <what laughs> I mean, <I'm> <laughs> <hear>. <laughs> But, I mean, have you eliminated desire, those types of things, you know, and how do you define desire? And That's kind of my short answer to that question. I, I think it's the most difficult one. Kind of like Hinduism, too. I don't think there's any need for them to necessarily... Well, no, not that there's no need, but th- they might not see a reason for it, for leaving.
1: Well, <laughs> let, me, uh, let, let me pray as the team comes up to, to worship. Lord, we pray that we're trusting it in the right place by learning uh, more about your word, more about what other people believe. We're spending time growing in wisdom and understanding just as you did. So honor our time tonight. Bless the time that we've invested tonight. May it return multiplying fruit for your kingdom in ways that we don't expect. Maybe just one or two thoughts that we glean from tonight that we start to think about become the seeds of a conversation with somebody we might run into. Lord, we're not trying to do this to manipulate people into conversations about the kingdom, but in our ignorance so often we know very little about what other people believe. So tonight, again, as we always do, we dare to ask you. We dare that you would use us in ways that we don't even expect. You would put us in places where we might meet people who have different faith backgrounds than we do, and that we wouldn't shy away from it or become total ignorant and arrogant in our ways, that we would actually begin to find common ground, begin to explore the same things that they're exploring, and ultimately be pointers back to you, Lord. So we pray that we've done that tonight with our time. We pray that you're pleased with us for what we're doing. And if not, Lord, that you direct us in the ways that you want us to learn. We pray this in your name.